and welcome to One Square Mile in North East Fife, a podcast from the University of St Andrews. I'm Ruth Sanderson and in each episode I'll be chatting to one of our academics about their life and the real world impact their research has on all of our lives. Today I'm joined by Professor Rebecca Goss from the School of Chemistry. very, very basic terms, we look for treasures from nature and we try to understand how those treasures are made and how those treasures work. So, for example, one of those sets of treasures, one of the treasure boxes I'm particularly interested in are um, antibiotics. There is an absolute wealth of antibiotics which are made by microbes, made by plants, And we're really interested to understand sort of like mini enzymatic machines that make these fantastic medicines. Do we not have some knowledge of that already? Because presumably, you know, I'm thinking about antibiotics. I think penicillin, I think that's a natural occurring process. Why are these things that need discovered if they already exist in nature? That's that's a really good question. So at the moment, we are... um, facing an atrocious crisis with the emergence of antibiotic resistance. So whilst we have some great things like penicillin, unfortunately, just a few years after penicillin started to be used widely, resistance straight away emerged. And Alexander Fleming, even in his Nobel Prize speech, warned people about antibiotic resistance. So what's the best way to overcome resistance? Well, there are many theories on this, but one approach is to find further medicines that could be used to which the bacteria haven't been trained how to break them apart or how to pump them out. So we look for very different um, structures, very different um, medicines, and we look at the enzymatic factories that make them And we try to understand how these factories make them. How did they do these incredible and really selective pieces of chemistry? And how can we re-engineer them to make the modified medicines that we want with improved properties? So are you kind of doing reverse engineering? You're finding a final product in nature and going right back to source to see the nuts and bolts of how that's put together. Exactly, that term reverse engineering, um, seeing seeing what the molecule looks like and then thinking about, well, how would that be constructed and then finding those tools that make it. But we look for things which are um, really... Uh, real wild cards, so um, for which there aren't um, published precedents in um, in the literature, and we look particularly for those um, to try and understand well what new chemistries that we haven't seen before is is nature using here to install these, and and this is really cool because um, it means that we can play combinations of um, what's broadly termed as synthetic biology, so full pathway engineering, individual enzyme engineering. And we can start hyphenating that with chemical steps as well. So really extending that um, synthetic pathway and that synthetic repertoire to be able to quickly build very different molecules. So where do you find these antibiotics 
in, in the first place? Where do you go to find something that hasn't been written about, hasn't been published? Is there a lot of fieldwork involved in what you do? Well, you could start as simply as under your feet with all of those different microbes. Oh, I wouldn't if I were you. (laughs) Well, you know, you could go down to the beach at St Andrews, take a sand sample, see what you can culture there. Um, There is a whole wealth of untapped treasure. Gosh, that's fascinating. So it's kind of just like sieving through things that we see around us to see what you can find. Absolutely. And um, with the revolution in sequencing, you can do this super fast now um so there are so many microbes which are now fully sequenced and rather than having to sieve through individual molecules you can do this by um sieving almost like a word search so imagine you have those genes um laid out and you are looking for particular um motifs as we like to call them just very simply like a word that you find and circle in a word search and it might be the one component that you're pretty sure is involved in the assembly of that antibiotic but you don't know about all the rest of the steps involved so you go looking for that one component that you believe to be there and you can find that quickly through doing that word search and not only do you find that one but you can find all the ones related to that. So all the wonderful diversification that nature's already done. Um, So it's a great way for finding new antibiotics, but it's also a great way for being able to see how they're assembled Mm -hmm. and how you might be able to almost Legoize the assembly and piece together your own new antibiotic. Uh, What kind of success have you had in it so far? Because, I mean, the the idea um, to me of... Like you said, it's a great, great term, Legoizing and rebuilding it into something new. Is it something that actually happens or is it theoretical at this point? So at the moment, we're taking baby steps with it. We can do this around some um, cool antibiotics which um, have really exquisitely narrow spectrum of activity. Um, They just kill this one nasty pathogen, um, which is a problem for cystic fibrosis sufferers. Um, And we can... um, we can deconstruct that pathway and we can put in other enzymes um, and build out different antibiotics. But we've been building a toolbox so that we can quickly pick up um, and modify pathways of series of other antibiotics. So um, an approach we're calling genocometics, um, where we can take enzymes from very, very different systems. So we mine um, the really diverse areas of life. Um, we have enzymes that we take from fungi, enzymes that we take from plants, enzymes, really useful enzymes that we take from viruses, um, which are great pieces of Lego to build together into um, new antibiotics and then um, and then we can do chemical diversification. Just explain to me what an enzyme is. So an enzyme is a really amazing catalyst. It's um, generated naturally by nature. It can mediate a very selective reaction. It can take quite a complicated um, starting material and it can elaborate it in just one particular place. But in broadest terms, an enzyme is something that catalyzes a reaction. It lowers that energy of a reaction. 
let's get on to antibiotics um, because it's one of the biggest threats facing medicine that the resistance to antibiotics and the the ever increasing um, strains that that can get around how they work is it a running to catch up scenario for chemists or is there kind of a way you can predict what's going to be resistant or 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 kind of preempt what's going to be resistant so I think the biggest challenges we need to look toward are antibiotic stewardship yeah, we can be keeping to fi- keeping on finding, racing behind nature, um, l- racing behind all these horrible pathogenic strains which have evolved to be able to either destroy the antibiotic arsenal we've got or to be able to um, pump, pump this out of the cells, um, detoxify them. If we keep working in the same way and not stewarding antibiotics more responsibly, then we're just going to have the same problem with each new one that we introduce. There is fantastic work going on at um, the University of St Andrews. So, um, for example, in medicine, really neat approaches to being able to very quickly determine what antibiotics a particular pathogen is sensitive to. And I think that's part of the puzzle with correct antibiotic stewardship. If you're prescribing exactly the right antibiotic that's going to kill that pathogen, fantastic. Problem is, if you're not prescribing the right one, what's happening is when that's administered to a patient, every single other bacterium in the body is educated on how to start destroying that antibiotic. And so resistance is not going to be a problem we can run away from unless we start thinking first on the stewardship. So is this the main thrust of your work at the minute? As I said right at the beginning, we've got a couple of things that we're really passionate about. So um, one of the sets of things is um, the um, natural product discovery and engineering. But another of the treasures for nature that we're exploring um, are these fantastic enzymes um, that... um, that are so well evolved to be able to carry out very selective tasks. Um, So for example, we've got a lot of work going on within my team looking at um, CX bond formation. Um, We call it molecular X factor. Um, (laughs) No, very simply, what is CX bond? Right, so molecular X factor, um, a carbon halogen bond. Let, let's break that down a little bit more. What's, what's a halogen? Um, so carbon chlorine, carbon bromine, carbon iodine. And if you just look at carbon chlorine, this is really um, such an important bond that's being formed. If, if you um, have a look at the top 200 um, small molecule drugs, over 60% of them need that, that installation of that um, carbon-chlorine bond to be able to make that molecule. And the rest of them require it in that final product to be active. It, it makes it really, um, it gives it properties that enable the drug to be taken into your body, to be uptaken, um, and it also gives it the bioactivity. Hence, we call it molecular X factor, or a fantastic um, student from my group 
coined the term molecular X factor because X in chemical speak denotes any halogen. And then what we're um, working towards doing is harnessing these really powerful tools to address a real problem in manufacture. So at the moment, although all these pharmaceuticals require this molecular X factor to um, be installed, the current processes are using highly dangerous chlorine gas or other problematic starting materials. And chlorine gas is, is really reactive, really dangerous to handle, and it's not selective. So if you um, put in your high-value material that you're wanting to install molecular X-factor into, that molecular X-factor, well, it's not going to go in at the precision point that you want. It's going to go all over the molecule, and you're going to have a lot of waste, and then you're going to have to pay the cost of separating that waste. Whereas with an enzyme, you can get um, bespoke CX bond formation just selectively at one particular site. How it does this is a little bit like the precision of putting your hand into a glove. Each digit on your hand fits in a leather glove in a particular position. And so when, um, let's say at the point of the thumb, that's where you can add the, um, the molecular X factor, make your CX bond, the enzyme has the chemical machinery to be able to make that CX bond just at that point. So it doesn't go everywhere else. So why doesn't this happen already then? Why has nobody gone, oh, well, I know what we'll do. We'll use some CX bonds already that occur in nature to do this. Yeah, really good question, because it, it seems obvious, doesn't it? I think the real reason behind it not having been pursued so far is that until we started work on this, um, there were only a very small number of enzymes known that could um, selectively do this around core pharmaceutical structures. So very, very few, and they um, they could modify um, very small substrates. In fact, you could you could write all of these down um, in big handwriting on the back of a envelope, and and that was all that was known. But um, since that, we've been mining a, a very large number and testing their activity and watching their selectivity. In terms of impact, it's quite easy to see then how the work you're doing has a very real world impact on the medicine that we take, the antibiotics that we take, the chemical processes used within industry. Is it quite easy to drum up interest, financial interest, that, that can fund a lot of the work that you do? In spite of the pandemic, um, we have been pretty blessed with funding um, for the Exgenics project. Um, I think that we we need to, as a nation, um, consider even greater investment in science. I think that it, it does work toward solving real-world problems. Um, it also is something that massively underpins our economy. Um, so funding in UK-based, Scotland-based science is, is really important. <laughs> talking about um, more investment within sciences in the UK, do you think that chemistry often gets a bad rap? 
Well, we don't have so many of the rock stars that you see from um, geosciences and physics and astronomy. Um, so we're definitely missing that key person um, as, as a spokesperson for chemistry. This is something that we um, quite frequently discuss at the Royal Society of Chemistry. Does it get a bad rap? Um, I think one of the challenges with chemistry is it's so pervasive. We take it take it for granted. Chemistry is in everything. It's in that coffee cup that, um, that you're drinking. It's in the, the composition of the coffee cup. It's in the composition of the coffee. I think that... Yeah, we do need to flip the way that chemistry is perceived um, and get people, encourage people to see how empowering chemistry is um, and everything that we take for granted being underpinned by chemistry. In terms of sciences, especially chemistry, I'm only thinking of my own experience here of it but for me chemistry was completely killed as a subject in school how important are those early engagements with science i think it's it's really critical isn't it and i think that encouraging children to have inquiring minds and to explore the natural world and to think about physical principles and think about chemical principles that's really important um I had some wonderful chemistry teachers. Um, growing up on the Isle of Man, I had a fantastic chemistry teacher, um, Mr. Arthur Looney, A. Looney. He really inspired a passion into, into the subject. What was it for you that got you hooked? I loved all of the subjects. I really wanted to study English and history. Um, but I really enjoyed understanding more about the natural world. Loved biology. Yeah, I enjoyed chemistry. At the end of the day, I'm afraid I did a really boring thing of taking a piece of paper and writing the pros and cons behind doing art and history, which I really wanted to do, or chemistry, biology, physics, that I really wanted to do too. And, and I came to the conclusion that if I did chemistry and biology, then I'd have access to labs, access to a cool kit, and I thought that in my spare time I might be able to do a, a bit of reading and writing. And But then I think that's a really interesting, first of all, a very scientific way, Rebecca, to figure <laughs> out what you're going to do. So there's your first clue. Um, but also I think that, you know, that idea of, of being loving English, loving history, loving those subjects where you have to uh, tell a story and a narrative. I think that probably works very well with chemistry because you've been able to explain to me, who knows absolutely nothing about chemistry, you know, about about what you do and about the absolute core molecular um, properties and importance of what you do. And do you think that sometimes actually it's a translation of what chemistry is that needs to be slightly clearer that people maybe struggle to understand sometimes. Yeah, I think we all have to work hard to make sure that what we're doing is is clear and to explain why what we're doing is important. And 
even exploring things which are truly fundamental and there may not be any vision for translation at the moment. This is absolutely vital to the health of science because if you don't understand those fundamental things and those things which are maybe decades and decades and decades away from any form of translation, you don't expand your horizons. You don't have the possibility to take a pioneering leap. We should be working much harder to explain what's exciting about science, um, about um, what's so important to society about science. But I think that there are, are lots of obstacles that come in there. So I think at, at early age, people who have been um, intimidated by science, the lingo of science, they're less likely to engage in that kind of storytelling in a primary school classroom. I think another thing that is, is so critical is making sure that there are the right and accessible role models out there for, um, for the children. Um, and I'm particularly pleased when I see um, PhD students from my group getting involved with these types of outreach activities. I'm presuming here that having women to be those role models as well is quite important. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the numbers of women in chemistry in the UK, in the US, in across Europe, very, very low. Um, and making sure that it's exemplified to people that yeah, it's a fun career. It is a, a career that's as much for women as for men. And that, yeah, jolly well, you can do it as well as being a mum. You don't have to choose between motherhood and, and being an academic scientist or a scientist in industry. Um, the, there has been a lot of pressure previously um, and the, the numbers of women in science has been very, very low. Um, and I think it's something that we need to be noisy about as well, making sure that the next generations can see how exciting science is and that we welcome them into a career. As a prominent woman in science yourself, Rebecca, do you feel an extra burden on your next responsibility to be one of those role models? Absolutely, and it's something I'm quite passionate about and I'm involved in quite a lot of activity to encourage next um, generations of people into science and to um, support and sustain women who are already in science and finding it a bit of an uphill struggle. Um, we've got various different initiatives going on. Um, one project that I'm particularly excited about is a project I've recently had funded with um, an internationally acclaimed poet who is absolutely brilliant. Um, the project is called Nomenclature. We stumbled across each other um, because someone was Googling us and they found two Rebecca Gosses. Um, and so what we're doing in this study, what we're um, creating is an overview, um, celebrating the, the career trajectories, the scientific discoveries, of um, a handful of wonderful women and mums in science 
and Rebecca is celebrating them in poetry. The other Rebecca Goss. Yeah. Of course. But what a lovely uh, bit of serendipity that was. You know, I, I think sometimes there might be a perception that sciences are slightly siloed off from arts and humanities, from um, maybe non sciencey subjects. Do you think that's true and do you think that's changing? And what's the importance of collaboration with other disciplines? It's been really good to see that shift over the past decade um, and seeing that there is much more interaction and true interaction um, with arts and social sciences. Uh, um, And this is something that um, you're seeing increasingly in the UK and you're seeing it increasingly in North America. Um, And it's great. It opens up so many more opportunities um, so um, much better way to understand how the science that you're doing is perceived by a different part of the community and to think really about how you're addressing a problem. Are you addressing it from just a pure scientific curiosity point of view? And we had that discussion a a few moments ago. Um, Or are you really addressing the crux of a problem um, that that needs to be solved? Mm. I, I think that's a really interesting thing, you know, that idea of the crux of a problem. I think that's what's quite special about academics, is that you are here on the north coast of Scotland trying to solve some of the biggest problems that face the world at the minute. When you approach your work, do you do you consider that? Do you realise the sort of enormity of what you're trying to do? Or is this just a kind of workaday problem that you're you're trying to figure out oh this is horribly indulgent we go into the lab and we have fun and we're just really excited about the the new molecules that we're finding and we're really excited when we see they have activities we're really excited when we see that there's the possibility of that that translation um i'm afraid we go in there and we play with our wonderful toys and it's great that they have impact on certain things, yeah, we go in there thinking, let's let's really set this up to make a difference. So, for example, um, with some of my colleagues, we have a frugal engineering project looking at being able to develop systems for um, sustainable production of antibiotics for Africa. Um, what what would we need to do to be able to equip them with all the kit that they need to be able to be producing their own antibiotics, not having to rely on other countries to supply it. So that's that's something that it is just so privileged to be involved with projects like that that can quickly and tangibly make a difference to people. You said you grew up on the Isle of Man. Were your family academic? Did you did you come from that sort of background? On my mum's side, it's a very long line of missionaries, of ministers. On my dad's side, it's a very long line of um, crazy pioneering people <laughs> who um, set up airports in different parts of the world, tarmacs and installed electricity, all that sort of thing. So it's a, um, an eclectic mixture. Um, I th- my mum and dad um, 
would have described themselves as entrepreneurs, um, excited and interested in lots of different things, being very pioneering, taking first steps with with a number of things. Um, and yeah, they promoted curiosity. Well, we moved around all over the place. As I said, my parents were entrepreneurs. Um, and then um, for my longest period of time, I was on the Isle of Man. Um, I went to a fantastic school called the Buchan. We were the Buccaneers. We had tricorn hats and capes. Yeah, you couldn't make it up. And and then, yeah, I um, for various different reasons, um, I needed to move away and I went to a boarding school in England. Um, and yeah, that was great. Uh, so I came here 2012 um, and yeah, blown away. Fantastic um, colleagues, fantastic university, surrounded by the most stunning scenery. And I knew I could sell it to my four-year-old daughter at that time because the place is surrounded by most beautiful beaches. And, and Esther at that time loved making sandcastles. So it was, yeah, such a thrill to come. Just thinking about your buccaneers hat again, you know, that it kind of feels like the sort of place by the coast you can wear it. Maybe it was harking back to that, maybe. Absolutely. Well, the Isle of Man, of course, is um, a tiny island surrounded by sea. I love being near the sea. So this was the perfect place for you then? Yeah, ideal. Ideal. And how have you found it as a place to work? How have you found it as a place specifically to be a female scientist? Yeah, it's been a great place to work. A really fantastic university. I'm thrilled that it's number one yeah. on the Times League table um, and really great place to work because the facilities are wonderful the equipment that we have really great and across the university um, there is such an opportunity for collaboration and that multidisciplinary working. I was telling you about some of the fantastic work that um, some of my colleagues in medicine do, looking at that antibiotic susceptibility testing. And that's just so complementary to looking for new antibiotics as well. Um, so there are so many different exciting avenues. The, um, the marine research carried out at St Andrews is truly world class um, and and again um, there, there are really nice opportunities for synergy um, we love marine bacteria <laughs> put that on a t-shirt yeah. <laughs> what do you think the future is for the study of science specifically chemistry are you optimistic that it's going to be in a, a good position in 10, 20, 30 years time. So I think chemistry is becoming a lot broader. I am very optimistic that it's going to be in a strong position in 30, 50, 70 years time. There's so much more that we need to understand. And there's so much more that we can um, start to get a purchase on using techniques such as AI. Is there anything chemistry can't do? So if I was flippantly going to say, compose a sonnet. Um, but then I started thinking, well, maybe someone would randomise codes um, with DNA, um, encode it to some words and then put it through. So is there anything that chemistry can't do? Um, yeah, I think I'll have to put a pause on that one. <laughs> 
Thank you to Professor Rebecca Goss for sharing some of her insights and explaining some of the work she's doing here at the University of St Andrews. And thank you to you too for listening to this series. You can find all our episodes through your favourite podcast hosting service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do like, share and review. And never miss an episode by clicking subscribe to One Square Mile. 